welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers. And I'm Natalie Dowzicki. Today, we are going to zoom in and enhance our understanding of some of the finest science fiction of all time, the world of Blade Runner. Here to discuss both Ridley Scott's original and the 2017 sequel, 2049, keep up folks, are two very special returning guests, features editor at Reason, Peter Suderman. Thanks for having me, guys. And the Sultan of Swat, the King of Crash, the Colossus of Clout, the Great Bambino, director and editor of Libertarianism.org, Mr. Aaron Ross Powell. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> All right, y'all, let's let's put our cards on the table. Can you both give me your two-minute thesis on whether or not Deckard is a replicant? I'll start, I guess. Um, my answer is I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> I, I actually don't think that him being a replicant or not does much as far as my interest level in the movie or the narrative and doesn't seem to change it much in my mind. Um, I think that the – Especially the director's cut makes it very clear that he is. I think there's stuff in the first one that makes it pretty clear that he is, but they can all be kind of written off. The second movie complicates it a bit, and I think the second movie makes it more likely that he's not. But by and large, I don't take a strong position because I find it to be, I guess, one of the less interesting aspects of both films. Um, I, I suppose I do find it an interesting question, but the answer to it, I think, uh, first of all, doesn't – whichever answer you come to, it doesn't change my enjoyment of the films, uh, of both of them. Uh, both these movies I love so much. Um, uh, the other thing is that I think it depends on which version of the movie you're watching, and different versions of the movie are different texts and should be interpreted different ways. And so – the theatrical cut that was released, you know, in 1982, and then the TV versions that are based on the theatrical cut, um, none of them have the unicorn dream that was the big insertion that Ridley Scott added into the director's cut that was released in 1992 and has remained in all of the subsequent cuts uh, up to the final cut, which is now sort of considered the... Um, you know, the standard version at this point. Uh, once you get the unicorn dream into the original Blade Runner, it's very hard to make a case that he is not a replicant because what that unicorn dream is telling you is that uh, is that Gaff knows what's in his head, is that those memories are implanted and that he has been through the replicant, you know, the Nexus 6 process uh, that um, gives you fake memories that make you feel like a person. Um, in, the, it, in Blade Runner 2049, well, of course, he's still around, which means he didn't have the built-in lifespan if he was a replicant. Uh, but I think it's sort of interesting the way they deal with it, which is by not dealing with it. And instead, they ask a question. They just sort of put a question into the movie about his dog. Is the dog real? And the response you get is, who cares? And that is a, I think it's a, it's one of my favorite moments in that movie because what it is doing is saying to all of the fanboys who have just obsessed over this one little aspect and made it the defining thing about this, the, uh, about both of these films, which are just so multi-layered and so interesting, completely independent of this kind of puzzle box of is he or isn't he a replicant? They're saying that's not what these movies are about. Like it's, it's an interesting question that is, of course, embedded in the, in the narrative and in the text and in some of the clues 
that are in the film, but it's not it's not just a little mystery about whether Deckard is or isn't himself a replicant. The movies are about a whole lot more. And if that's all you're if you're treating them as just that, you're watching these movies wrong. I'll just add, I think that the unicorn scene is not as dispositive as it's made out to be. And I think that it is not the key piece of evidence of Deckard being a replicant. Um, in fact, the key piece of evidence is exists in the theatrical cut, and that is the glowing the, eyes. The moment, the glowing Sorry. eyes, because that's a very clear signal throughout all the movies. And Harrison Ford, I know, has said it was an unintentional glowing eye in the theatrical cut. That it was just light was ref- meant to be reflected into Sean Young's eyes, caught his. But these movies are so obsessively made and especially obsessively lit that I find that difficult to believe. Also, um, Harrison it, Ford, it, there's always been this, this this divide between Harrison Ford and Ridley Scott, where Ford wants to believe that Deckard is not a replicant, and Ridley Scott is pretty determined to make Ford to make Deckard definitely a replicant. And so, again, that's one of the ways that twenty one of the reasons why 2049 deals with it by eliding the issue through the dog question. I think, though, on the unicorn, that can be read in ways that don't point to gaff knowing Deckard's memories. One of them, I think, is simply that both of them are Blade Runners. Both of them know about the way that replicants are made. They know about implanted memories. If Gaff knows about that implanted memory, the unicorn thing being a memory that replicants have, then it stands to reason Deckard might as well. And Deckard has just interviewed Rachel. Um, He has just gathered up the photographs from the snake lady's house. So he's been thinking about replicants and memory. And if the unicorn thing is just a running metaphor or joke between two partners about about replicants manufactured memories, then it could be that running joke could be the thing that causes both Deckard to be thinking about the unicorn and Gaff at the end to be making a unicorn origami. And I, I think, think that's, that's plausible, but it's a little bit extra textual since there's no discussion of unicorn dreams prior to the unicorn dream in the movie. I agree. I think it's it could be a stretch, but I think it makes it so that there are other ways to interpret that scene that I think don't necessarily point to replicant so that if you are a person who rejects the Deckard as replicant thesis entirely, you have wiggle room to get out from underneath it. I think except for the red eye. Pretty fair. But even the red eye, even the red eye I actually don't find dispositive. You know, it, it doesn't it doesn't solve the question for me, though it's um it's suggestive, certainly. Uh this is these the, the, both of these movies are in their own ways uh, movies about shared humanity, uh, about the sort of sense, you know, uh, that like that all living things and perhaps even some things that aren't living but are conscious in some way um, are connected. And that moment to me is a in, in the in the first film when he sort of backs up out of the kitchen and his eyes start to glow just like the replicants eyes have have glowed throughout the film. It's not necessarily saying he is a replicant that was created by the Tyrol Corporation. What it's suggesting is just this. It's using the tools of cinema, a little trick of the light to show the ways in which we're all kind of on the same continuum of existence. And, you know, this is one of Ridley Scott's uh, themes throughout his work is is the the shared humanity of, uh, you know, uh, of people trying to survive in a bleak world. 
the world is something that you bring up, Peter, that I think is very, very interesting and distinguishing between these two movies. And I think something that you have made note of is Scott's original presents a bustling world of people crowded, cramped on top of each other, juxtaposed against the rather empty, sort of desolate, brutalist production design of 2049. What do you think is the significance of the choice to pivot in that direction? Is is there some sort of story that we are, you know, that is hinted at? Is is it simply trying to present the world in a different light? What does what does that mean? Well, part of it is just that these two directors um, have very different design philosophies and design interests. And Ridley Scott comes out of a commercial advertising background. He had uh, he was still, I believe, Blade Runner was only his third feature after The Duelists and Alien. Um, and he's he's an art guy, right? He he is uh, someone who is a he's a quite good draftsman himself. Um, and so he's just obsessed with density of detail, especially back in his earlier work. You look at Alien, it had this similar sort of uh, incredible density of detail in the design of the, of the spaceship, of the world that they end up landing on, of the alien itself. Um, and so that's just a kind of a, a personal predilection. It's uh, e- you know, that's where it starts. Um, and then you have, uh, Denny Villeneuve, who was, uh, working with cinematographer Roger Deakins, who is kind of an all time legend, came out of, uh, working with the Coen brothers. Uh, he gave, he's the guy who shot, um, uh, the Shawshank Redemption, um, you know, and gave us that great sh- overhead shot of Andy Dufresne, you know, uh, standing in the rain, finally a free man. And, and both, uh, Villeneuve and Deakins really love these stark, simple silhouetted images. And that's their whole kind of uh, design aesthetic, their visual aesthetic that they bring to uh, – they've worked together before. They worked together on the film Prisoners. But you see that in Deacon's work even outside of uh, when he's working with Vienna. You see a film like uh, No Country for Old Men or Sicario uh, re- relies a lot – I guess that's, Sicario is also a Vienna film. Um, but rely, they rely a lot on these really stark, uh, quite simple – silhouetted images. And so to some extent, it's just a reflection of who is making these films. But I think there's also pretty clearly a story here. And there was a bunch of ancillary material that went with Blade Runner 2049 that talked about the social collapse that had happened in between the the in between the two films. Um, and, you know, and I think he, uh, Villeneuve didn't want to simply replicate the world that Ridley Scott had had built. He wanted to create a world that flowed from it, followed from it, that looked at it 30 years later. And I think that's a it's a really interesting way to think about uh, filmmaking and also to think about urban design and sort of how societies evolve. If you went to Times Square 30 years ago and then went back, well, let's say, uh, you know, at the beginning of 2020, you would find two very different places, right? Um, uh Cities evolve and they change. And and even over the course of a couple of decades, even over the course of, you know, they will change uh, radically just in the course of a single lifetime. Our cities have changed a lot just this year. And that is reflected in these in, in, in both of these movies. I think, too, you can look at it or you could frame it as attempts at inventing the future, because in in 1982, like Blade Runner basically invented what the future looks like in the public consciousness and changed the way that science fiction films look. You know, there's that that story of William Gibson was, I think, working on Neuromancer, which would, you know, create the cyberpunk genre and saw, which came out 
two years after Blade Runner and went to see Blade Runner and was just shocked because up on the screen was like the world that had been inside his head. And he uh-huh. later used the word Blade Runner. He turned it into a verb in at least one of his novels. He's got this this great like idea that like things have just been Blade Runnered all over the place. And you know exactly <laughs> what he's talking about because it's just so it's so it's it's so distinctive and clear a design philosophy and a way of thinking about uh, urban you know sort of urban social organization. And and so I think that given that given that it's become so ingrained that I think we just post that movie when we imagine the future and we're not imagining it with spaceships and Star Trek sort of stuff, it looks like it looks like Blade Runner. Um, and so if then you're coming at it to make the next movie and you want to invent the future, the future has to – it's like Blade Runner's future is now our – present in a way that I think Peter just described of Times Square coming to take on a lot of these these characteristics. Um, but it's also just like our our assumed familiar future. And so if you want to present us with a new future that is unfamiliar, you have to move away from that. And you have to go in this different direction. And I think in this case, it is this quieter, more stark, more melancholic, both tone and aesthetic. Whereas it would have felt, if you did exactly the same thing as the first one, it wouldn't have felt like it was decades in the future. There's a sense to, I, I think, in which uh, 2049 um, feels weirdly prophetic right now, just because it projects a kind of emptied out urban landscape, you know, in which people don't go out as much, in which um, something has happened to clear people out of these cities that had been super densely populated. And now they just look like they've sort of been sitting there, not with no one in them, but with few people in them for a couple of decades. And it's a little bit eerie to to go back and watch that now um, as that a version of that has happened to our cities. It's also interesting the way that both of the movies, both of them are claustrophobic movies. They're, you know, if if they were video games, the draw distance in both is pretty short. Um, and in in 1982, in the first one, that's achieved by there's lots of stuff. So there's lots of stuff obscuring your vision of there's no horizons because there's buildings and trucks and cars and spinners and people with glowing umbrellas in the way in 2049 you've for for story reasons that are given in the little vignettes that they put out between the films um things have cleared out a bit but instead we get the the haze we get the snow we get whatever it is that's turned las vegas orange um that that it's like there isn't there isn't stuff obscuring it it's just like the very atmosphere doesn't let us see past our noses still but it achieves that same kind of like the entire world is closed in on you effect we've been talking a lot about world building and how the two films kind of identified a future but i think another thing that we ha- that hasn't come up yet interestingly enough is the role of government in these films, um, or I would say the absence of government. And I was wondering if you all thought that was an intentional absence, or if you thought that it wasn't necessarily uh, having a government exist in a sense, isn't necessary to the films. 
My first thought immediately that comes to mind is the really only government sort of imagery that we get other than the sort of idea that like corporations are extremely powerful and perhaps might be involved and entangled with them in some way are the really the only people are police that you see and you don't see other than Blade Runners or Robin Wright's character in 2049 and a few other investigators, there are very few that you actually see. Um, you get a lot of their cruisers flying around and the sort of Big Brother-esque voices, but you have these constant swooping spotlights that are like dancing around the city constantly peering into buildings and sort of shining a light I through slats and into windows that sort of gives this um, panoptic sort of ever-present eye, but there's a, a huge distance between it. So to me, it makes it seem like maybe the message of the absence or what is perceived as an absence of government really is just sort of a, a distance between the people on the ground and the people that are in power such that there's there's very little interplay between them except for in a downward motion. The first Blade Runner in particular is also a picture of a depopulating world. And it's not super explicit in the text of the film, though you do get this, you know, at the very beginning, the, the big advertising blimp uh, that's flying over that says, you know, let's go to the colonies and build a new life. If you've read the novel, uh, the Philip K. Dick novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, that the movie is based on, that's it's much more explicit in that book that Earth has become kind of uninhabitable and that people are moving out to colonies on other planets and that that Earth is sort of slowly decaying. Um, and there's this just this real sense of kind of civilizational and interpersonal uh, decay that's built into that book that you see some of come out in the movie. And part of that is, again, a thing that's in the book that is only vaguely referenced. You can sort of pick it up if you know what to look for in the movie is uh, that in the book, um, most animals have died. And that, and so that has, that's why there's a premium on these, you know, on, on real animals and people have uh, taken up, you know, all of these, you know, it's, uh, fake animals, uh, you know, replicant animals as pets, as kind of comfort animals, uh, uh, you know, um, therapy creatures, whatever, uh, that sort of thing. And so, my sense of it is has always been that that government is just kind of on the decline because this world is no longer worth governing, right? It's worth policing a little bit, but people are moving out and they're they're going elsewhere. And this was this was in some of the earlier versions of the scripts. Uh, initially, there was supposed to be a scene um, in which the replicant group. Uh, uh, was looking at Earth from, I believe it was from the moon, um, right, where they had been, you know, uh, where they'd been working or something. And this was just after their escape, after they killed some humans. Um, and so that was built a little bit more into earlier versions of the script, and it just didn't appear in the final movie. But you see this this world that has been depopulated, even though it looks very crowded in some places, this world that has that is in a, a state of decay. Um, and as part of that, Government just kind of isn't there anymore. Yeah, and the the stand-in for the big powerful things. It's not it's not the cops. It's the corporations in these movies. Um, Tyrell and then Wallace, um, but both of them aren't even really focused on 
Earth. Their attention is elsewhere, right? That it's they they've kind of given up on this planet, and they're making they're making the replicants in order to facilitate more stuff on the off-world colonies, and then. Diander Wallace's scheme is to go even broader. He just wants to, you know, radically populate the stars. Um, although we do get the bit that he came to power because he figured out how to at least keep people on Earth a little bit longer by teaching them to grow grubs um, that he owns the patents on. But but there does seem to be this sense in which all of the the power centers that we typically think of have just turned their eyes elsewhere. Um, and and I think that goes with like the even when these movies are at their most bustling, they're both like deeply lonely films. Um, and, you know, and what there's, there's very little in the way of like authentic personal connection in them or meaningful relationships or the meaningful relationships that are there seem to be, you know, corrupted or not particularly healthy. Um, but there's just a real sense in both of these of like the attention and the future has turned away from these places from Los Angeles and from the world in general. And, and it's just the little guys, you know, with their food trucks or, um, their black market animal dealings, like just trying to get by, but, but no one's heart is in it anymore. I mean, that's very much built into all of the, the material in the first film with, uh, the JF Sebastian character who is, you know, literally he just says, I, I make my friends, right? And he is living in this giant, empty kind of cobwebby place uh, that with with a bunch of semi-intelligent doll creatures that he has created to keep for himself. And it it, it really is a, a movie about loneliness and disconnection in a lot of ways, as much as it is about also about the you know, the, the shared connections that we all have, but in some ways, what it's saying is the thing that we all share is we're all kind of lonely. And that seems to be picked up from, you know, it's noir influences. Cause that's a strong theme in, you know, your, your hard boiled detective novels and films are about in the midst of large cities like Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York, you're just alone and people drift in and out. But most of the time your hero's job is to, lock them up or shoot them and then move on to the next, you know, kind of empty one-off relationship. But, but that loneliness just comes through and it comes through in like the way the films are lit and shot. Um, the, the closed inness of both Kay and Deckard's apartments, like their kitchens are astonishingly narrow. Um, and, and just like that's, everyone's just completely cut off and there's just walls between them. And, and I think that also then ties into that claustrophobia of the setting of like not being able to see very far. Like you can't even see the broader world that you're a part of. Yeah, that noir sensibility was really what uh, Ridley Scott was trying to capture. I mean, his initial sort of interest in this was just like, oh, I would like to make uh, a classic Hollywood noir, but set in the future. And even to the point where he apparently had originally planned for Deckard to wear a fedora um, and then only scrapped that plan once he saw that uh, Harrison Ford was wearing a fedora in Indiana Jones. 
here's a question that is is kind of a hypothetical, but I I have just kind of been curious about in a lot of these stories where we have humans that end up in a sort of Promethean way, giving life and sort of imbuing intelligence upon usually robots, you know, your Westworlds and now your Blade Runners. 2001 A Space Odyssey. So many classic movies, but rarely do we get the chance to have such a, a, a distinct discussion of when does humanity at a certain point define why those creations that are become so lifelike do not get the same rights that they do? Um and it's really interesting to me, like specifically one thing that gets brought up in 2049 is the thing that Joy says to uh, to Kay, Ryan Gosling's character at one point. She says, born, not made, which specifically itself is a call out to the Nicene Creed, um, the statement of belief in Christian philosophies that basically says that Jesus was born, not made. And, and the fact that he was born, not made sort of goes against this classical liberal idea i mean i immediately went to thomas jefferson all men are created equal and and the sort of distinction between being created and being born that is so inherent in the second movie i'm always curious as to how the people in these worlds come to the conclusion that their creations are less than human and how is that reflective of the world that we live in I mean, to me, so much of this comes out of the early and mid-century uh, science fiction uh, debates, that, you know, uh, about robots and about what they were going to be. And, you know, uh, Isaac Asimov is the uh, sort of godfather of robot fiction. He wrote three laws for his robots that were pretty much uh, built in that, that cast them effectively as tools as uh that were going you know not even servants but just as tools of humankind um and all of his uh you know robot fiction was about kind of robot morality and how those logical rules would would produce uh of you know differing results and could you know create complications for the code um because asimov uh asimov was a humanist who thought that Robots just couldn't and wouldn't ever have rights, that they were literally only tools. They might be interesting. They might be conscious enough to be your friends, but they would be tools. And this is how he talked about them. And he's talked about them being about being sort of proud of this, uh, this innovation in thinking about how robots would, um, would interact with, with human society. Um, and then, of course, because he was so influential when it came to robot fiction, um, a lot of science fiction writers started to toy with that idea and and also to sort of uh, push back on it. And I think you see Blade Runner in a lot of ways is a rebuke is maybe not quite right, but uh, it is an argument with Asimov about what kind of rights robots, you know, sentient beings that uh, sentient machines would have, what um, whether they are fully human or not. And it very much comes down on the side that uh, for all practical purposes, they are human. They are like us. And it is a it is, as you said, sort of it is a a movie whose philosophy is about the extension of rights and the extension of humanity as uh, as as wide as possible. And I think, too, what it does is when people in the movies are debating this issue or thinking about this issue of the rights of replicants or the humanity of replicants, they search for 
these external signifiers of so the born not made or replicants don't have a soul humans do like some sort of yardstick that we can use to judge that but then the films basically push away those yardsticks and tell you that they don't they don't answer the question and they don't much matter so you have it particularly in 2049 you have like say k who becomes convinced that maybe he was born um and and watching it this time i caught that the reason he becomes convinced of it or the initial idea is given to him by joy so the computer program puts the idea in his head that maybe he was he's not a computer program himself um and then he has suddenly all of this meaning in his life so all of the stuff that we would think is you know the the core of humanity he starts imagining in himself and so it's really there but then of course he was made we find that out at the end that he is not the child um and he has a moment of losing meaning but then finds it somewhere else finds it in i think is it freya is that her name um the the replicant the leader of the replicant resistance tells him about you know like dying for the the right cause is the most human thing and he he reestablishes that meaning and also this born not made gets interpreted in multiple ways because the the resistance leader says look if we can be born then we are like fully human and um and we're told you know more human than human like that's the thing that will make us human but when like rob zombie says Yes. But when <laughs> when Wallace is explaining his plan, I think in the scene where he kills the the replicant who comes out of the Ziploc bag, um, he he says there that if replicants can be born, that makes them more effective, better slaves. Like that's the thing that will allow us to even further exploit them is if they can be born, because then we can make a lot more of them and they just like self-replicate. So so that that signal is complicated in the movies kind of tossed away misinterpreted but doesn't seem to have much meaning in the end right well the the thing that stood out to me it made me think about it in particular was once we find out that k is not this sort of chosen one messianic symbol uh the the lone child that was was born and not made you eventually figure out that it was indeed, or it, it's heavily hinted at, that it is Anna, uh, the woman with the uh, that lives in the bubble and designs the the dreams, and it's it's just barely hinted at when he's looking at the two uh, genetic codes that he finds when looking deep in the records, and he's actually looking at DNA sequences, the things that make humans human. Um, that the before they mix them up, they did find that one of the twins died of something called Galatians syndrome, which itself is sort of a reference to the Methuselah syndrome that uh, J.F. Sebastian has in the first film. Methuselah, a, a biblical figure who lived to be almost a thousand years old and is very much a symbol of longevity. Uh, even though he was in his 20s, he looked m much, much older um, because of a, a genetic uh, syndrome that he had. Whereas Galatian syndrome is is not a real condition as well, but the, the book of Galatians is very, very heavy on the message that 
the belief in a in Jesus in particular, uh, as the the Apostle Paul is writing to the people of Galatia, that the belief in the grace of God is the thing that will save you, and not the law or the doctrine of the Jewish people. Um, it it is the belief and faith in that idea that will save you. So perhaps. Anna, the person with Galatian syndrome, sort of providing the idea to these replicants or even to Ryan Gosling's character that it's just possibly the idea that they are uh, fully human is a way to bring them up and uh, allow them to rise up rather than just live their lives as creations as slaves. You see that in uh, the first film as well, with the whole idea that they couldn't quite figure out what to do with themselves until the memories were, they had memories implanted, right? And they needed that sense of history, that sense of themselves, whether it was real or not, didn't matter. What they, what they had to have was a belief that they were real and that the belief was, was, um, the foundation for that belief were these memories that, that were implanted so that they had something to grip onto, some sense of, of uh, a world beyond themselves that allowed them to think of themselves as 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 real and useful and allowed them to function and, and sort of go forward in in the world, but also then um, created complications where they felt like their limited roles as, you know, android servants uh, were not enough. If both of the movies are pushing back hard on the idea that because replicants are created creatures, they don't have rights or don't have, you know, the internal lives that we would think would be meaningful um, and that they should be treated as we would treat other humans. What do we make of the quite uncomfortable sexual assault scene in the first one? Um, and because it's it's hard to know if that was just a product of a different time in the way that when you watch a lot of movies from the 80s, there's stuff that, you know, can sometimes be kind of shocking to modern sensibilities, or if there was something intentional going on there that we were supposed to get more meaning out from it other than just like, you know, Harrison Ford probably should have respected boundaries. Yeah, I mean, so uh, just from a production aspect, I think, first of all, um, the scene was written in a in a way that reflected the sensibility of the time, um, which uh, was much more accepting of kind of male physical aggression. Um, in some ways, uh, not just accepting, but but thought of it as a as as kind of sexy, as kind of right as a a thing that um, that desirable men would do to women. Um, but also in during the production, uh, famously um, Harrison Ford and uh, Sean Young. Um, did not get along. They really didn't like each other. And Ford just let loose in that scene in a way that was not planned and he, and that people did not know was going to happen until it happened. And so that's probably not uh, does not reflect well on Harrison not Ford great. at not this great. point. Um, <laughs> not cool. uh, but at the same time, part of what that movie is doing, just if you want to sort of read the text of it rather than the production and the era, uh, I think that part of what the, that movie is doing is it is quite concerned, as Ridley Scott always is, with the ways that humans or human-like people can be brutal to each other. He does not view people – He views he's a humanist who views humans as sort of like 
the closest thing there is to a good in the world and human life as the closest thing there is to a good and the and rights as good. But at the same time, his movies are very much about the ways in which humans are simply awful to each other. And if we are going to if you're going to make a movie about how robots are people, too, then part of it is going to you know, one of the things that if you're Ridley Scott, you're probably going to want to say is that robots can be awful to each other as well. And that just because they're human and just because they have rights and just because they have worth and deserve to live doesn't mean that they're not going to be um, that they're not going to be cruel to each other, that they're not going to be brutal and that they're not going to take advantage of each other as we see. Yeah, they they use the line more human than human a lot of times to describe themselves. And I always sort of questioned, I was like, that's that's another interesting yardstick that they use to describe themselves, because what does that mean to be more human than something other than perhaps, say, more flawed? That then doesn't address how the second movie, I guess, fails to address that scene, because the second movie doesn't seem to acknowledge that aspect of their relationship and implies that it was a perfectly loving relationship. Um, and Deckard is made out to be the kind of doting, you know, boyfriend who had to go away for reasons. But it's it feels like if that were the message that the first one was trying to convey or a way to read that, it's the absence of that aspect of it is is pretty stark in the second one. Isn't that, though, partly because the movie, the second film, gives us Deckard's perspective on his life? And people, you know, in, in their old age, as time goes on, you the, the rough edges of of the of the past get kind of filed off in many cases. And you don't remember yourself in many cases as a monster, even if you were one. Um, and things sort of become romanticized. And I think the movie is one way of reading it, I, I guess I could say, is not that it is um, just reading that out of the story, but it, that it is telling you that Deckard now reads that out of the story, that that's not how he sees it, not how he remembers it, because he has um, a, you know, a, a romantic view informed by nostalgia and time. He also, I don't think of it, it totally sort of shaves off the rough edges. It, it certainly leans into that reading, I think, Peter. But uh, when he's sitting down at the bar uh, with Ryan Gosling and they're, you know, discussing what happened to the kid and why he had to leave, I believe he says something like, well, that was part of the plan is I had to leave. And at first, I thought it was something to the effect of like, you know, that this was part of the plan of creating this child and them being the, the, the first one of this. But I think you could also read it as I was wondering, like, maybe like the human like things that they are, you realize that it did not work out between Rachel and Deckard and perhaps Deckard continued to be abusive and it was truly better for him to leave her and the child and give them a chance to be on their own and maybe they met up with uh Sapper in for instance and he helped take care of them because Deckard was was not the person that he needed to be um and that this sort of plan he's talking about is something much more um uh, omnipotent or divine that he's referencing rather than any actual plot of people 
Right. So you're suggesting almost that like Deckard is taking himself out of the equation in order to save those who he loves. It, it may not even it may not even be to save who he loves. It might have just been he was so bad and, you know, he got it right one time and was like, it's better for me to leave. But it, it I mean, I don't see it as a way of him being like, and now I'm absolved for everything because I will let you be on your own. It was just him being like, I have a lot of problems, obviously, because for my entire life, I lived as a human and hunted the people that I now suspect are my kin. Um and he has to escape that somehow, perhaps. All right. All right. I can buy that. <laughs> I just I guess part of me thinks that because these these both these movies honestly feel like really devoid of human emotion on behalf of humans and replicants. And I think that's totally intentional. But I guess I just don't think I don't think there is that much thought into why uh why Deckard would leave them or the continuing of their relationship I think I think the scene that Aaron brings up is certainly problematic if it were to be presented especially in a movie today um but I don't think I I think I'm in Aaron's camp here where I just don't think they gave any lip service to that scene in the in the 2049 version and not that there needed to be lip service towards it but it does leave like a giant question mark in my brain about what their relationship looks like. Um, but then again, I don't think it's central to, central to what I take away from the movie. Like it doesn't ruin the movies for me. Um, but in, I, so we've been bringing up this idea of memory a lot. And as uh, Peter was speaking earlier, I was thinking about how we're, we were talking about, well, maybe Deckard doesn't, maybe he uh, romanticizes his memory of how things went down or he glosses over unsavory parts of his memory um, and I just thought it was it was ironic that we were talking about it in this way because the whole idea is that all of the replicants are given memories that are not theirs that they, they don't actually belong they don't actually they're not their memories and they don't belong to them and I thought of this idea of like if you're perceiving your memories not belonging to you or are you perceiving your past just differently and I think I think throughout this whole through the first movie and the 2049, there's this idea that like memory is so central to who you are as a like a human and i was wondering what you guys <laughs> this is like a very hypothetical question but what would happen if you essentially found out you're an uploaded copy and your memories don't actually belong to you because that's what this realization that all the replicants are happening what would be your reaction like i i don't think you just go on go on like yes i have a cause now i think like <laughs> well, but it's interesting in the movies with a handful of exceptions so with rachel and then perhaps with deckard um everyone else all the other replicants know that they're replicants right and they know they that have, their like, memories are fake right like, they they like understand that they have these memories because without them, they would be non-functional, but they at the same time know that they're fake, but that doesn't seem to phase them. Like they still are arguing that I'm just as much a human as you are. And I think that's probably, you know, I mean, if you found out the same thing, on the one hand, it would throw you for a loop and it might put you into a funk and all of that. But in the end, I don't think that there's that much difference. 
you know, like the memories are memories and there's not, there's not a meaningful, you know, this is similar to like my feelings on the free will debate. Like whatever the answer is on the free will debate doesn't matter because you're, you like would continue to live the same way that you live and your experiences would continue to be the exact same as they are and the world would continue to function the way that it does. Um, and so I just, I think that in that case, the way that the replicants respond to already knowing is probably a pretty accurate portrayal of how the rest of us would would deal with the same issue. I mean, memories are all always in real life constructed and shaped, and you lose some of them, and you and some of them you remember in mistaken ways. Right? They're they're not very reliable guides. If you've ever studied, you know, um, eyewitness testimony uh, in courts, it's actually quite unreliable. Um, it's not. It's not to say that we shouldn't be using it, but there are real limits to it, and people's memories play tricks on them, not because they're lying, not because, uh, not even because they are particularly obviously motivated in some cases, just because memories are not perfectly reliable. They're malleable and we, and our brains do stuff to our memories that we don't always know is going on. And sometimes, sometimes you are then, uh, faced with reality. Um, I can, I, I have a, uh, a, a distinct memory, which I think is true. Um, of uh, of meeting someone who uh, who I had long admired and had an email correspondence with and and known uh, this is a person with a, a public persona and I'd known this person sort of that way for a while and I met this person for the very first time in a bar actually right next to the Cato Institute and uh, was so excited to finally meet them and the first thing they said to me was. I said, hi, it's it's so great to meet you. And this first thing this person said to me was, no, actually, we've met before. And then went to, on to describe a monologue that I had delivered in a, <laughs> in a car ride oh. um, like <laughs> 10 years before because that person had been an intern at a job that I had worked at very early in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and I just hadn't remembered the interns and like saying stuff to them. Um, and right. And like this sort of thing happens all the time to us, whether we're, we realize it or not, is that, you know, the connections that we, you know, uh, th in our filing cabinets, the, uh, in our brains, um, just kind of short out. We forget. Oh, wait, my goodness, that's there. And it can be brought back. It also sort of gave me appreciation for the, that sense that some people have, you know, of, uh, I mean, I, if you guys have read about about the um, the repressed memories and all the kind of stuff that goes uh, that goes on with that, where most of the repressed memory stuff turn out to be not true. They're in some cases even uh, intentionally ish implanted by the therapists who are working with these people. A memory is just a weird thing. It's weird for humans. It's weird for robots. It's weird in movies. Um, and I think if I found out that my memory had been was not what I thought it was, I would just sort of end up realizing that's it. It all it's always not what I think it is. I mean, it's always to some extent an unreliable guide to to who I am um, because it has been shaped by a, a million factors that are knowable and and unknowable. Anna even says they think it's more about when they ask her, you know, why are you the best at creating memories? Why, why does Wallace employ you so well? She says they think it's about the details, but it's not like that. We recall with our feelings, anything that's real should be a mess. And, and that's true. Your, your memories are embedded in your body in the way you felt things and and smells and and sense memory and they can be manipulated and changed by the things that you want and desire or that 
happen to you over the course of a, a period of time. But they are not they are not the clear stories like frames in a movie that we imagine them in our heads as. They are flowing sensations and weird, malleable. I it's it's more like the paint hasn't dried yet constantly and they can constantly be smushed around and, and and repainted and like a palimpsest it can be scraped clean and there but there's something left underneath it's it's not locked in place like a a, a piece of film these movies uh blade runner and blade runner 2049 depict capitalism and and corporations in a pretty distinct way I think um, that set the tone for a lot of other science fiction uh, uh, media before. I would say it's it's very interesting though, and something Peter made note of before we recorded. Do you think they are pro or anti-capitalist in any way? I think you can read them as anti-capitalist if you want. You know, the the Tyrell Corporation, the the Wallace Corporation seem like large uh, large companies that have a lot of control over individual human lives and the and the future of humanity. Um, they don't seem to be governed. You know, uh, the government, like we said, seems mostly out of the picture. At the same time, there is this real sense, especially in the first Blade Runner, that I just love about it that there is that humans are kind of inescapably creatures of commerce that that commerce is the main way in some ways in which we in which we deal with each other and survive and a a, a thing you know we've talked about how blade runner has sort of given rise to visions of the future um it was at the time you know i, I think still you look back on it consider this very grim dark gritty uh futuristic vision but if you look at the way that places like Times Square and, you know, uh, the kind of big commercial centers in London and all over the world, all, all of the, you know, Hong Kong, all of these big commercial uh, urban centers, what they've done in some ways is adopt a Blade Runner like aesthetic, but happier, but like not dark and grim and gritty. Right. You go to Times Square and it's like, oh, this is sort of it's kind of like Disney World. It's it's fun. Right. It's I mean, there's there's like something a little bit sort of hectic and over the top about it. But there is this this real sense in that movie in which that like a good way for people to live and interact is to kind of just be on top of each other all the time, selling and buying and trying to, and, and, you know, uh, setting up shop and, and eating weird food and, you know, whatever it is off the streets and making animals. And, and it's just sort of like, I actually like, it's a weirdly to me, I look at it and I think of it as on the one hand, yes, this is a grim and bleak vision. And on the other hand, this actually seems to get at the way that humans, um, interact in a commercial in a in a commercial manner so much better than than other science fiction movies, um, and because it really sees commerce as being at the center of uh, of human life and and a, and a human existence. I also think, kind of going off Peter's point here, that it's interesting that again, like we were talking about, you're talking about commerce, and you're talking about how humans interact. And Aaron had said earlier about how. There's not like a lot of 
fabulous relationships in this in these films and it also goes goes back to me thinking like if we're talking about how how individuals interact we don't necessarily see like a like a lower class other than like people who aren't like the head of corporations right so the corporations are kind of like looking down on looking down on the people in LA and i just think it's so interesting that with this idea that peter brings up that it's not necessarily grim in that aspect of commerce and how we interact with one another I just don't I just don't see any like human emotion. I said this earlier. There's just a lot. It just this movie just, just kind of makes me sad. <laughs> I guess that's that's kind of like my conclusion of it, but I don't know. I I want to live in that version in Los Angeles 2019. <laughs> I mean, it it that is I like <laughs> that is an urbanist's vision, a, like great vision of the future without like a little less smog and a little more light, but that that is that is what the urbanists want is like walkable like, streets, trees. food trucks on every corner. <laughs> I mean, if you've ever been to Hong Kong, that's actually what uh, parts of Hong Kong really are like is just sort of this like mess of stuff uh, being sold everywhere and like and there's so much of it and it's so wonderful and it's kind of like some of it's scammy and some of it's a little scuzzy but the food is so delicious and and like and it's just like here's people making stuff for other people and engaging in trade and it's it's actually i don't know there's there's a part of it again i don't want to I don't want to push this interpretation too far because Blade Runner is definitely not a movie about how like things are great and wonderful. <laughs> no, but, no optimism. But there is but there is a sense in which the world that it depicts is one in which humans have figured out how to muddle through and how to interact with each other um, and and how to survive. And that's that's a thing you see in Ridley Scott's fiction a lot. You know, I mean, from the alien to the Martian, right? He is somebody who thinks, well, the world is living is a hard thing to do. Surviving is a hard thing to do. But you know what? We can and we will because we're humans. And that's what makes us human. And now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other pieces of media that we've been enjoying while we have been at home. This is Locked In. Uh, Aaron, what else have you been enjoying other than reliving the Blade Runner glory days? Well, being locked in has made me feel somewhat escapist. And the way I have been doing that is by spending too much time in shared world fiction. So most of my reading lately has been either Warhammer 40,000 novels which I guess is imagining a place even more <laughs> grim than the one we're in at the moment. Um, but with cool robots. And I have also just recently started reading Legend of the Five Rings novels because there's a new series of those out and samurai fantasy stuff. Um, so nothing nothing highbrow, nothing to be proud of, um, just escaping into other worlds. How about you, Peter? Oh, I've uh, I've also been escaping into a video game, uh, Wasteland Three, which uh, came out a, a few months ago. It is an isometric, turn-based, squad-based role-playing game. Ooh, um, a sort of a cross between Diablo, Fallout, Mass Effect, top-down, um, uh, kind of XCOM-style combat. Uh, it's story and dialogue-heavy, emphasis on choice and consequences, as well as tactical combat but also on goofy and dark political humor. So you you play as a as a sort of group of rangers and you have to build a squad uh in a post-apocalyptic Colorado uh far in the future of, of the after the United States has sort of collapsed. Um and your mission uh is to help out the local ruler who is known as the patriarch 
whose children, uh, all of his heirs, have set up little fiefdoms that are um, competing and combating with each other and with him all over the state. Um, and so uh, you you have to kind of decide which ones you're going to ally with, which ones you're going to just take down. And eventually, of course, you have to decide whether you are going to ally with or help uh, or oppose the patriarch and his brutal rule over the citizens of Colorado himself. Um it's the the game is uh close enough to a kind of um contemporary satire that it actually opens with a a disclaimer this is a work of fiction ideas dialogue and stories we created early in the development process have in some cases been mirrored by our current reality it says um but there's like literally you you um at one point, encounter a cult faction called the Gippers, who worship a Ronald Reagan AI that they then conscript you into turning into re- a real person, which I think would, um, you know, uh, really go to our debates about whether AIs uh, can be real and whether they're humans or not. Um, and of course, you know, you have a choice whether to help them or and exactly how. And it's very kind of uh, it's it's interesting narratively just in terms of the the, the sheer volume and complexity of the choices that 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 it offers um and it's also a a really interesting game just not just in terms of the tactical combat being pretty good and and well designed but in terms of the way that it kind of, that it shows how video games can deliver stories and can serve as 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 effective uh cartoonish sat, you know political satires and the ways that they can be actually i would say just as politically relevant and do just as much um uh, interesting political uh, com- comedy and commentary as uh, as as a lot of our you know popular fiction and, and television shows. Um, so highly recommended for folks, uh, particularly if you like the Fallout games or the XCOM games uh, or Diablo that sort of thing. Um, it's a it's a pretty fun game. Well, speaking of games, uh, I I played my first game of Among Us. <laughs> I was. Uh, the L.org team now plays Among Us <laughs> during the week. And uh, I was uh, not the imposter, but I still got voted off. So I'm 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 still healing my wounds from that. Uh, other than other than playing Among Us, I've also started finally Lovecraft Country on uh, HBO. I'm only one episode in, but so far, uh, so far, it's pretty good. The episodes are, are pretty long, pretty true to HBO style. And then I also um, started a new book that um, I, it's called Life Undercover. It's by Emerilis Fox, and it's about her experience in the CIA. Um, I started that yesterday and um, I'm only 10 pages in, so I really don't know if it's worth my time. Uh, but uh, <laughs> The only other thing I've been doing is listening to the second season of Dr. Death, which I mentioned on the last Pop and Lock. Uh, but those episodes, the first four are out now. They um, they released three in the beginning and then one uh, once a week for the next three weeks. Um, it's very scary and makes me worried about going to the doctor ever again. But it's also a really cool story. So <laughs> take that for what you will. Uh, I have, uh, other than watching a lot, of the Korean dramas on Netflix that my wife has recently gotten really, really into and sort of walking in and out of the room as she uh, exclaims things at the TV as she gets shocked by the the plot twists that go on. Um, I have listened to a couple podcasts, a lot of uh, one that I enjoy that is you can just jump in with any episode. You don't have to start at the beginning uh, is produced by the BBC. It is called No Such Thing as a Fish. 
Uh, it is a team of the researchers from the show QI, if you're familiar with that show. Um, so they're all like really bright, amazing researchers who try and find like extremely obscure, weird facts. And they just kind of sit around and are like, oh, there's, did you know that you know, X is true. Like there's, there's no such thing as a fish, which is one of the first facts that they discussed. And I have never learned so many strange things in a 45 minute period. And there are just these brilliant people who will, you know, they'll be like, well, this week I was researching this and I learned this weird fact. And they'll tell a brief story or anecdote about history or science or, you know, it could be anything. And that will leapfrog somebody else to be like, oh, well, that's actually interesting because I learned something about this. So Really bright people. If you want to just have something fun on in the background where you can learn stuff, I suggest no such thing as a fish. I also have been re-listening to some of my favorite episodes of Hello from the Magic Tavern, uh, which is a group of Chicago-based improvisers. And basically, it is a fictional podcast where the host is a gentleman that accidentally stumbled upon a portal behind a Burger King and fell into the magical land of Thune, where he befriended a shapeshifter in the form of a badger and a wizard named Usador. And they go, every, they have guests on every week. And they basically started with nothing and they week to week improvised this world of this magical land that they live in. Um, and they they bring in a new guest every week. And it's like, oh, our guest this week is a talking sword. And that person will just go with that and be like, oh, hello, I was in a lake and <laughs> I was. And and what? but they're all extremely talented improvisers. Um <laughs> yes, uh, you'll you'll actually would probably like it, Natalie, because uh, Arnie Niekamp and, uh, is the host of it and a few other people. And they all uh, are also writers for the Jackbox games. So oh, uh, like th that. that is another job that they do is they write for those uh, those games. If anyone likes uh, likes those, um, you might like the type of humor in in Hello from the Magic Murder Tavern. Mystery. Um, and I also have been re-listening to an album I discovered last year, uh, actually just after I started this job, which is uh, the band 100 Gex and their album 1000 Gex. Um, it is, to put it in a way that was, I think, really uh, solidified it for me, it is the most Gen Z internet music that you can think of. They basically were like, let's think of every like fad type of music that has been popular on the internet over the past few years and smash them together, but also be very, very good songwriters. Um, so there's like, like crazy dubstep mixed with ska and pop punk hooks and uh, like chipmunk auto tune vocals. You are either going to love it or you're going to hate it. Um, you just described everything I hate. Yeah, you probably would hate it then. <laughs> but I would say it's done with a lot of care and actually really, really amazing uh, songwriting and hooks and structure. Um, and they, they write like great melodies and uh, they're also very, very funny. Uh, they actually met um, and then their first performance was at a Minecraft festival. So they debuted their music at, at a virtual festival in Minecraft. If that gives you any clue as to kind of, the kind of community that they arose from. Uh, so if you're into that, you might like the band 100 Gex. 
Thanks for listening. If you are one of the, I'm sure, many people that thinks we got whether Deckard is a replicant wrong, make sure to let us know on Twitter at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a review if you like the show. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of Libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.Libertarianism.org. <laughs>